got Jesus, how could I want more? God, Jesus, how could I want more? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the day. Uh, we thank you for your word. And uh, as we study uh, Ephesians 2 today, uh, I want to pray for every person in this room uh, that they would see that Jesus is leading us to life, that the way of Jesus is, is the way of life. Help us to see it, help us to believe it, help us to, uh, to receive it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. When uh, the game of life was introduced in 1960, uh, the purpose of the game was really, really easy to understand. It was who could earn the most wealth. And by the, the way that you got there was pretty simple, by going to college, getting a job, buying insurance, saving for retirement. And, and that was indicative of kind of the, the, the time when the game came out. It was indicative of what people believed in that era, that this is where life is found. And over time, the designers of life realized that the game didn't really, quote, reflect consumers' changing views of life goals. And so in 2007, about a year after I came here, uh, they kind of updated uh, the, the game of life, and allow, they allowed players to score points for virtuous deeds like uh, saving endangered species, opening a health food chain, recycling, and all of that stuff. Um, and, and instead of the game starting with kind of A to Z, uh, now there was no fixed path at all. You decide on how you want to spend your time. And that was one kind of example of the growing change in our culture of where we find life, where we get life, and what life looks like. I saw a recent study that said, uh, that, that believes that the pandemic will cause many to not be so mesmerized, according to the study, by luxury goods. In a survey of post-pandemic spending, 61% of survey respondents said they canceled or cut back on, quote, luxury spending during the pandemic because their time in self-isolation reconfigured their relationship to things like luxury. A surprising 21% said that they would continue to do this well after the pandemic is over. And it raises a really interesting question, right? Where is life found? We all want life. That is the thing that every person in this room has in common, one of the things, that we all want life, we all desire life, we're all focused on life, but where is life truly found? We've said this a couple times in this series already, but I think it's important to hit this a couple times, that Paul loved the Christians in the city of Ephesus so much. Uh, you go back and read the book of Acts, and he is almost like when he goes to Jerusalem, he's almost like torn apart from them. And they're weeping and they're upset. They loved each other so much. The, the Christians in Ephesus loved Paul and Paul loved them. And one of the things we're gonna see in this text today is that he wanted life for them. He loved them so much and he wanted them to find life. He wanted them to find true life. And I feel the same way about our time together as well. That man, I want life for you. I want life for me. I want life for my kids. And so the question is, where is that life Found, and that's the focus of chapter two of the book of Ephesians. Here's, we're going to take it kind of chunk by chunk, chunk, a couple verses at a time. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in, we, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Right? You may remember uh, some of Jesus' words in John, a uh, different author but similar idea. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief only comes to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is leading us to life. But there is this thief, refer to him as the devil or Satan or the deceiver. There is this thief who wants to steal and kill and destroy. He is not leading us to life. That thief is Satan. And he works in so many ways. He works uh, through temptation. Like we've seen a couple stories in your Old and New Testament. He works through temptation. Uh, that, that, and he says that something that is not good is good. That, that's how temptation works. He works through lies and contradictions. He, he's called, Satan is called the father of lies that he lies to us about what God has said. And one of the additional ways that we really rarely talk about, one of the additional ways that he works is what this, uh, what this text is talking about. He works through the ways of this world. He develops these spirits within a culture. He is the spirit of the air. He works through these spirits in a culture that are contrary to the spirit of Christ. Right? He works through these spirits that will not lead us to life. They will actually lead us to death. And, and he works through a spirit that runs contrary to the way of Jesus. And every culture and every, uh, throughout all of human history has had the spirit of the air at work in them. It is this, spirit, this cultural spirit that runs contrary to the spirit of Christ. So for instance, a culture might have a spirit of power. Right? That might be the cultural spirit that teaches people that life is found in your power when you can control people and get what you want. That might be a way that the spirit of the air works. A spirit of the air might work through a spirit of greed that says life is found in the accumulation of stuff. The spirit might work through a cultural spirit of self that says what I want is the most important thing and what makes me happy is the most necessary thing. There might be a spirit of leisure that says that the, the, the goal of life is downtime and not contributing. There might be a spirit of division that says that, man, life is found when those people, whoever they are, those people are defeated. And on and on it goes. Every culture throughout all of human history has had, a, has had the spirit of the air at work, these cultural spirits, cultural mindsets that just run contrary to the spirit of Christ. They will not lead us to life. They will actually lead us to death, Paul says. He's talking about a spiritual death, to be sure. That there's a reason that in our culture, for instance, that I think the, the spirit of the air has worked through a spirit of power at different points in our nation. Money, leisure, all of the ones that I mentioned, leisure, pride, politics. And he says there, there's a reason that there has been a lowering and lowering interest in God and Jesus and the church the last 15 to 20 years. It's the kingdom of the air. It will lead to relational death, that we are so, as a culture, we are so separated from one another right now. Emotional death and even physical death, that our health as a culture has struggled so much the last five years. The kingdom of the air. The kingdom of the air is not leading us to life. One of the concerns that I think you'll hear, this is a very preacher thing to say, but I am one, so let, let me say it, right? One of the concerns right now is that we are just so immersed 
in the ways of this world in the kingdom of the air, through social media and culture and entertainment and politics, the culture of the air has his platform. And often, these are the platforms that perpetuate the mindsets of the kingdom of the air. And I think that we want to be mindful of this. And like I said, this is a very preacher thing to say. I'm not going to, my tone says I'm apologizing, but I'm not really apologizing. I'm a preacher by nature. It's what I do. But I believe with all of our hearts, we want to be on guard about this. We do not want to over-immerse ourselves in the platforms of the kingdom of the air and under-immerse ourselves in the platforms of the gospel. So let me be a little more clear. This is not a time in your life. There is, I don't believe there is a good time, but this is not a time of your life to be pulling away from church. This is not a time to be pulling away from relationships. This is not a time to be pulling away from the daily reading of God's word and prayer. This is not a time to be pulling away from Christian messages to give the gospel its due platform so that we are not misled, we are not deceived, because this is a very real strategy of the enemy. It is the cultural mindsets that just seep in. It is the kingdom of the air that is at work in those who are disobedient. And so that these cultural mindsets just become normalized accepted, and then all of a sudden the church is kind of on the defensive trying to correct it, but at that point it's gone on too far. So this is not a time to be pulling away from gospel platforms like church and Bible and prayer, um, online messages, all that stuff. This is a time to be leaning into that sort of thing. Verse three, all of us lived among them at one time, all right? So talk about the, buying into these mindsets. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. This was the way the kingdom of the air worked in Paul's context, was through the flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So as we kind of walk through, forgive my sniffles, by the way. My, I've got kids and it's that time of year. So, as we walk through the text, I want you to see the language, all the us language in this text, that all of us live this way. It is the thing we all have in common. We have all been deceived. We have all listened to the kingdom of the air at different points. We have all kind of pursued that mindset. All of us have that in common. So a spiritual posture of superiority to others is not really what the gospel teaches. He says, who gave into the kingdom of the air? Who was deceived? Who followed the wrong path? Who made the wrong decision? Who said the wrong thing? Who took the wrong, who made the wrong decision and took the wrong action? Here's Paul's answer. All of us. All of us. So a sense of spiritual superiority, superiority in me toward others, that I am somehow better than them, does not make sense in light of this passage. Because Paul says it is but by the grace of God that we would still be pursuing. It is the grace of God that pulls back the curtain and says, no, this is what is true. This is what is right. This is how you walk. It is the example of Jesus. It is the message of the apostles. It is what is found in God's word that we, but by the grace of God, so we go. I'll sometimes be taken aback in Christianity by sometimes the articulated humanism by Christians that there'll sometimes be this little mindset of, I have overcome 
my issues by myself. I don't understand why my family can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and overcome their obstacles and live a productive life. I did it on my own. I can't believe they can't do it on their own. And this sense of superiority will break in. Now, often I won't usually say this, but I'll think to myself, well, you did overcome some things and I have overcome some things and all it took was a crucified savior and a resurrected Lord and the embodiment of God himself living inside of me. Yep, I did it on my own. <laughs> it's silly. It is silly. And it's wrong because every single one of us has had the help of our Savior, the help of our Lord, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to overcome our issues, to choose better than what the kingdom of the air proposes, and to walk better in life. So he says we got we to gotta drop any sense of sense of superiority as we're interacting with our culture, that we are somehow better or more holy or more righteous because we did not do it on our own. Paul will get more into that later. The other thing that's true of all of us is that we were all, by nature, Paul says, deserving of wrath. And this is another way that spiritual superiority can sometimes creep into a believer's life where it's like, well, there are sins, Steve, I would, I would agree, there are sins that are deserving of God's wrath. They just don't happen to be mine. So there are these other people that struggle in these other ways with these other issues. You can fill in the blank on what they are. And those people, quotation mark, those people are deserving of wrath. But if I were to describe me, you might say, you say, I'm not really a sinner. I'm more of a mistaker, <laughs> right? I'm more, I'm more of a mistaker. I, I've accidentally sinned, right? I have reasons for my sin. And so I am not deserving of God's wrath, but woo, woo, <laughs> those, those other people, they are most definitely deserving of God's wrath. And I think that we sometimes fall into this, and I do too, me too. We fall into this because we lose sight of the holiness of God. I'm reminded of a, a text in the Old Testament where Isaiah God kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets Isaiah see his greatness and his majesty. I want to show you this text in Isaiah 6. <clears throat> the, this is, the sniffles are bugging you. The online community, is, they're getting driven insane right now. Like, enough with the sniffles. I can't stop, right? All right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You can just imagine what this was like. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." So he sees this image of God, this holiness, this strength, this greatness, and all of a sudden his sin gets placed in the proper context when God's holiness is seen in its proper context. And I think what is so interesting about this text to me, and this is not the point of this text, but one of the ways in which Isaiah responds 
to the holiness of God is he says, man, we are a people. I am a man of unclean lips. We are a people of unclean lips. And what I find so interesting about that as a a designation is I think unclean lips are a type of sin that we would have a tendency to say is no big deal. That in the big scheme of things, when we're talking about those kind of people that struggle with those sins, the people that are deserving of wrath, probably not in that list is lying, probably not in that list, gossiping, boasting. We just don't think it's a big deal. But Isaiah, when he sees the greatness of God, the thing he identifies first is, man, we are, uncle- we are an unclean-lipped people. It's a weird way to say that, but that, that's, we, we are a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah, all of a sudden, when, where he might have been tempted to think lying, boasting, pride, sins of unclean lips, when he may have been tempted to think they were not a big deal before, in light of the holiness of God, he realized what a big deal they were. And I think Paul's point is the same as Isaiah. This is hard for us, but when we can begin to see God for who he is, we will begin to see ourselves for who we are. And it's not fun or encouraging to say, but we will have no problem understanding when we begin to see God for who he is, we will have no problem seeing, man, I am by nature deserving of his wrath. My sin is by nature deserving of the wrath of God. And thank goodness, you should be grateful and I'm grateful too. That's not like, all right, that's the end of the text today. You guys have a great week. Let's go home, right? As you're driving home, remember you're deserving of God's wrath. Have a great week ahead, right? Thank goodness that it does not stop there because it paints this bleak picture that results in our death. And remember, Jesus and his gospel are leading us to life. So the text goes on in verse four. But, but because of his great love for us, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. It is one of the most awesome words in all the Bible that the word but And I I saw another church, I've never had the guts to do this, but I saw another church that was doing a sermon series one time, the big butts, B-U-T-S of the Bible. And I thought about doing it, but decided I liked my job. Um, (laughs) But it's a huge word, right? But because of his great love for us, it's another us statement too, that all of us were deserving of wrath, but at the same time, God had this great love for us. And that love for us was displayed in his mercy. And while it's true that wrath is kind of an attribute given to God, if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or whatever relationship with kids you have, you you understand kind of how this plays out because a scenario like this has probably played out at some point in your life anyway, that there was a time when one of your kids did something that they shouldn't do. They hit their sibling. They snuck a sugary snack. They backtalk. This never, ever happens at my house, but I'm, I'm trying to connect with you about how it happens at your house, right? Um, and there came a time where you caught your kids red-handed, right? I'll never forget, I've told you this story before, but walking into the kitchen, Cheryl had made some cookies, and she's like, we, these cookies are for other people, so we'll, we'll eat one or two later, but don't eat any now. And we walked in, and Cheryl's mouth is just, or Lila's mouth is just covered in chocolate. And Cheryl's like, did you eat one of my cookies? No, I did not. Well, that's a really, that's a big conundrum, right? Because it looks like you're covered in chocolate. But anyway, so there came a time where you caught them red-handed and they were guilty and you knew they were guilty and they knew they were guilty and they were deserving of your wrath. But because you love them, 
And because you are rich in mercy, on that day you were, another day the wrath just falls, right? You provided a way out for them. And that probably looks different in different households about how we provide paths of redemption, paths of grace. It looks different in every family. But what does God do for his family? What does God's path look like? Verse five, he made us alive with Christ even when you were dead in your transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That we are sinners by nature deserving of his wrath, but... But, but God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ. How does he do this? Paul tells us he forgives our sin, that our transgressions had to be dealt with because they separate us from God, but also our sins make us in a position where God has to demonstrate his wrath to us because he's holy and righteous and perfect. And so our sin separates us, but our sin also causes us to be the object of his wrath. And so he made a way for us, for our transgressions and our sins to be forgiven so that we can know God, worship God now and forever. And that is such a big deal. It may not sound like a huge deal, but it is such a big deal because I believe you and I were created to know, worship, and and obey God now and forever. And so God, our, our transgressions were creating a problem. And God provided a way for those transgressions to be forgiven so that we could find the life that we were created to have. He gives you his Holy Spirit. This text doesn't specifically mention that, but Paul will plenty of times mention this as an attribute of the life that God brings us. Um, and to the Galatian church, he says, man, the fruit of the spirit is love, <coughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the life that the spirit brings. And then what Paul really zeroes in on, and I want you to catch a vision of this. He has given you, a, he has saved you a seat for all of eternity, that he has made us alive now, that once you give your life to Jesus, he pulls up the seat and says, you, can sit, you, you are living your eternal life right now in Christ Jesus. You may not have known that, but it's true. You are living your life now, but he has made you alive now, but he has also provided a way for you to be alive forever. This last February, I was on a trip for my alma mater. I'm a trustee there, <clears throat> and we were in Orlando to go to this conference. And we, the hotel had provided food for the whole conference. And there came a time where a couple of the guys were like, we're just, we're tired of hotel food. And so I was out for a walk. He sent me a text. He said, do you want to meet us at this restaurant? <coughs> Excuse me. Do you want to meet us at this restaurant for dinner? And I said, you know, I'm kind of tired of hotel food as well. Uh, I absolutely will go out to you guys with dinner. Didn't really ask any questions. Showed up for dinner. I opened the menu. And I was so taken aback by the prices on this menu. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. I'm looking at the menu and I'm going, my kids can't go to college now. (laughs) Because of what I'm about to do, my kids will not go to college and be educated and live productive lives. And I'm looking at, I'm like, Cheryl's gonna kill me. I should be totally entitled to do this. I should have asked more questions, but my pride would not allow me to get up from that table. 
I, I'm just telling you, it, it would not. My pride went out and said, I can't afford this, whatever. It's like, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna figure it out. So I stayed and I ate the, ate the steak meal and the sides and all of that. And it is one of my favorite ways to spend an evening. It's a long, we don't get to do it with kids, it's with our kids, we're like, you know, get, get done as fast as we can. And so without kids, you know, we're just a long meal, great conversation, really, really great steak. It, it was really good. And then the check came. I was like, I'm sorry, kids. I've ruined your future. This is, and I went to pull out my wallet and they said, you know what? You're in the ministry. Keep your wallet away. We're going to pay for you. And I, I pretended to be like, oh, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, really, let me pay. I didn't do a ton of that. I was like, seriously? And they're like, yeah, you know, we, we really want to do this for you. And I just exhaled this thing. And it was one of the most enjoyable nights of just enjoying a meal with my friends. They ended up covering the, the bill, which was so thoughtful and nice of them. But it, it was just a great to have a seat at that table. One of my favorite images of heaven is the image of the banquet. And I love what Paul says in this text. You are seated with Christ. You are seated with Christ at the table. There is a seat for you in eternity. And Paul uses this word incomparable again. You remember last week he said, man, the incomparable power that is available to us through the Holy Spirit, the incomparably great power. Now he says, man, in heaven, <clears throat> we will see the incomparable riches of his grace in the age to come. And so I want you to know that where Christ is, there is a seat safe for you there. It's been prepared for you. And you're actually sitting in that seat now. It might not always feel like that because we are in the, uh, the beginnings of the promise right now. Someday Jesus will perfect it. But your eternal life has already begun in Christ. But just know that one of the promises that Paul makes here is, man, the incomparable riches of his grace is that you have a seat at the banquet table in heaven he has given you life now, and he has given you life forever. It is one of the things that has comforted me over the years is that, man, my, I am living my eternal life right now. And someday I, I will pass away. Someday I will. And when that day comes, my eternal life just continues. Immediately, it just continues in Christ. Here's verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It is very important to Paul as you read his writings that you understand this, that you are, well, everything I just described, the work of the Holy Spirit, the seat safe for you all of eternity, the life that you have right now, it is very important to Paul that you understand that you are saved by grace, not by works. You've been brought from death of the kingdom of the air to life by grace. And this is not the first time he's written this. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Romans 3, but now apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jews or Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all
all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. And Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Right? He says to the Galatian man, you, you want this to depend on you? You have, to, uh, uh, you have to live by everything written in it. Clearly, no one, relies on, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Who could do that? Clearly, no one could. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul desperately wants you to get this. That I am welcomed from death to life now. I am welcomed from death to life forever. I receive the Holy Spirit. My sins are forgiven. My eternity is secured. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. I am saved by grace. And he wants you to know this because it's true. But he wants you to know this because something happens when we believe that we did it. When we earned it when it depends on us. Let's go back to the food illustration for a minute. Imagine I cooked you a meal. Actually, let's imagine better illustration. Cheryl cooked you a meal, right? <laughs> this, this works better, right? Imagine Cheryl cooked you a meal and we spared no expense for this meal. We, we, made, we made everything the best that we could make it. Um, the, the best dessert, cheesecake, it'll be in heaven. It's first opinions, 319, right? So everything's the best and we drop it off to you. And for whatever reason, you refuse to eat it. It's not that you're, you know, have a gluten allergy or a food allergy or anything like that. It's not that you have a food allergy. You like the food. It's your favorite meal. We asked you about it ahead of time, but you just won't eat it. And instead, you, chick, you stick chicken nuggets into the oven and make little dinosaur chicken nuggets. In that moment, you are not receiving the gift. In that moment, you are not enjoying the gift. In that moment, actually, dinner is no longer a gift at all. Dinner is something that you did. And here's what you need to know. What you made in that moment, the chicken nuggets, is not as good as the gift you received. I can promise you that. That's the impact believing we earned it has on the gospel message. That we don't really receive it. We don't really enjoy it, and it really isn't a gift at all anymore because in our mind, we earned it. We lived up to the expectations. We met the expectations, and because of that, we are saved. And it affects our worship. This one thing will so affect your worship. There is an energy and a robustness to the worship of someone who understands grace. When we were singing that song earlier in the front row, I just loved hearing you guys, grace upon grace upon grace. There is an energy and there is a passion and there is like a robustness that comes out of a worshiper when they're like, it is not what I have done. It's not because I conform to some standard. It's not because I did the right things. I am saved by the grace of God. And you come into this place and man, I can tell when you are all in that grace spot, 
hands are raised, energy is in the room, and we are just worshiping our God and thanking him for his grace. Paul will start almost every letter this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he has saved us by his grace. It affects our relationships with each other That when we believe we have done it, I mentioned this earlier, all of a sudden our demeanor toward others becomes, I fixed me, why can't you fix you? I did the work, I made the sacrifices, I did what I was supposed to do, I fixed me, why can't you fix you? And all of a sudden we become like spiritually superior to other people. And it's like, oh yeah, you fixed you all right. It only took the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? No, no. I didn't fix me. I didn't fix me. I'm still not fixing me. It is the ongoing work of grace through the Holy Spirit that I can make any decent decisions at all. This affects our relationships with people that are far from God. That we are meant, one of God's missions with the church, this was his mission with Israel too in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it became his mission for the church is that we would be this display, the church would, of God's grace to the people around us. That they would look at the people and they would see these beat up, broken, sinful people all gathering together to worship and they would not say, look at how they have it all together. That's not what they would say. They would say, look at those people who are being changed by God's grace. Look at those people who are being motivated by God's grace. Look at how God is renewing them day by day through the power of his Holy Spirit. And they would see people as broken and beaten up and battered and sinful. And they would say, look at how God is moving in that church. But we cannot become a display for God's grace when we're not authentic. When we come into groups with believers and how are you, you know, you've been fighting all the way to church, yelling at one another, you hit the door, how are you? We're just fine, better than we deserve, right? And your kids are like, wow, that didn't feel that way in the van on the way here, right? (laughs) We can't display God's grace when we're not authentic. We can't display God's grace through a, a, a spirit of superiority, that I am more holy and righteous and perfect than you. Be more like me and maybe you'll have a chance. That's not the gospel. The gospel is be more like him. Be more like Jesus. Be forgiven by him. Receive his Holy Spirit and you will start to make better decisions. We can't display his grace when we're obsessed by what we did and not obsessed by what Christ did. And just like the illustration of the meal, it keeps us from enjoying the meal placed before us. There is this beautiful meal placed before you, a meal called grace. And it keeps us from enjoying it. It keeps us from indulging in it at all. It actually stops being a gift altogether. You are invited into this life of grace. Now, you say, well, I'm pretty sure, Steve, that when I've read the Bible... The Bible does talk about what I'm supposed to do. You are right. Paul will cover this in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. But look at what he says. You are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we are created in Christ to do good works. This is part of the life that he is leading us to. But Jesus first, salvation first, 
Grace first. Now, in Christ, we are created in Christ to do good works. It is urgently important that we get that order right. It is urgently important that we get that order right. Because otherwise, it's like works first. Now I have spiffied myself up. I have made myself good enough. Now maybe God will love me and care for me and grant me eternal life. That is not the gospel. That's you deluding yourself. That you can never do that. And as Paul said to the churches in Galatia, who on earth could ever accomplish that? That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus first, salvation first, grace first. Now, we are created in him through his Holy Spirit to do good works. The truth of the matter is, you are redeemed when you are saved. The other truth of the matter is, is that so are your works. Your works are also redeemed through God's grace. That you are saved by God's grace. So are your works. So you have a talent that you thought would make you a lot of money. And now you are seeing in Christ Jesus that you have a talent that cannot just make a lot of money, but actually serve a lot of people. That is redeeming our works. You have an ability that that you thought would give you a powerful career. But now in Christ Jesus, you are seeing how that ability can lead you to serve a powerful God. You have a background that you intended to keep hidden because it was this shame and regret and self-loathing attached to that history. But now in Christ, you are realizing you are forgiven. You are set free. You are empowered. And so now you are seeing how that story that brought you so much shame can actually help people avoid a lot of grief and hardship. And so you are coming out of the shadows of that story and saying, no, 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 I don't carry the shame of that. I am forgiven. I am set free. But this story can help someone, so I will share it. And you intended to keep that hidden your whole life. Grace first. Works second. He is leading us to this new life of grace. He has saved a a, a seat at the table for you, now and for all of eternity. There is a seat for you. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. There is a seat available for you at the table of grace. And Paul wants to make sure that you know you're invited. Now, if you're not interested or that life doesn't sound appealing to you, that's a different story. But do not fail to come because you don't think there's a seat. God would never hold a seat for me. After what I've said, after what I've done, the action, there is no seat for me at the table. You're wrong. You're wrong. There is a seat for you at the table of grace. And your life now will be changed forever by that seat. But so will your eternity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And right now, we are getting ready to enjoy the table of grace called communion. Back in the first century, they would do this around a full meal. Um, We do it a little bit different now, but it's the same table of grace. And right now, my prayer is that every single person in this room would understand that Jesus came so that there would be a seat available for them. And they may be sitting there like I did in Orlando earlier this year. How on earth am I going to pay for this? This is way above what I would normally spend on a meal. And you are sitting there saying, keep your wallet in your pocket. 
My son has paid the penalty. My son has covered the bill. So you come and you enjoy a seat at the table. The table of grace. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's put this all together on the screen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and followed the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath, but, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is from the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Welcome to the table of grace. Welcome to the table of grace. Where your sins are forgiven at this table. Where you are given the power of his Holy Spirit to overcome any obstacle at this table. Where the table is seated for you for all of eternity. You always have a seat at the table where eternity is secured. Where grace is given where love is shown, where new life happens. Welcome to the table of grace. We're going to receive communion together right now, and this is our our seat at the table. And we're going to pass out some bread that represents Jesus' body and some juice that represents his blood. And you can just hold on to those and thank him for his invitation to the table of grace. And then I'll come back up here in just a minute, and we'll receive communion all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Grace on top of grace on top of grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and for the enormity of the invitation to be at this table. I pray right now that we would have confidence in Jesus for his grace, his forgiveness his resurrection and his power, his indwelling of the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. I pray that we would see this as a gift of grace and not anything that we have done so that we can fully sit at this table and fully enjoy what you have done and not miss anything. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Really glad that you were here. Will you guys stand up? We're going to close with one last song of worship. Uh, We're going to have a couple elders in our overflow. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. If you have any prayer requests or prayer needs or any questions about this table of grace, they would love to meet with you, talk with you, and pray with you. Uh, So let's close with one last song. God bless you guys, and have a great week ahead.